let's take our Bibles and open to the book. Actually, this morning, let's open to the book of Jude. And let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that he brings to our minds those things that have been commanded, those things that have been written, that he illumines your word to our understanding so that we may know you aright, that we can worship you aright and obey you and, and honor you. And, and give to you our, our fidelity and our, our loyalty. And Father, help us this morning as we look at those that have been uh, predicted from long ago that there would be those who would come in to attack your church, who would seek to lead many astray, and in fact that they would be successful with, with many, not, none of those being your elect, we're grateful that you protect those who you call. And so, Father, help us to see you this morning and to, to understand these things rightly in Christ's name. Amen. As we've been studying Second Peter, and I'm, I'm grateful that Alan was able to cover last week. I had a chance to, to listen uh, to his class for the first part of Second uh, Peter chapter two while we were on the road this week. Second Peter chapter two and the book of Jude are very similar. And um, there are those who would, who would wonder uh, who is quoting whom. Um, I actually think it's pretty clear that Jude is quoting Peter, since Peter is talking about these false prophets are going to come. He's still looking down the road and is thinking of this in future tense, whereas Jude is writing and saying, they're here. And in fact, Jude quotes Peter. He quotes Peter from 2 Peter chapter 3. So let's take a look at the book of Jude because he actually fleshes out a couple of things that Peter introduces so that when we go back to look at Peter, it gives us an idea as to uh, things that he is considering. So the book of Jude, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Again, this is now... Uh, current. These people have crept in. So this is something that he's already dealing with. The church is already dealing with. They've crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness 
and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so here you have these who are coming in who are encouraging people and, and basically taking advantage of God's grace. The, that's the idea of licentiousness is since God's grace is sufficient, then we can sin all we want. And uh, you end up with, with cheap grace. And the idea here, when we look at this again, those who would take and turn God's grace into something that turns into license to sin, look at how Jude describes them. What adjective does he assign to them? You'll find it in verse 4. They're ungodly. So are these people who are redeemed? No, they're not redeemed. And so here you have these who are, who are coming in and they are, again, uh, taking something of, that God has given and they have twisted it and they're doing it specifically for the purpose of leading people astray. In fact, you, you see that again. Not only are they referenced as ungodly, but they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They don't deny themselves. They deny Christ. Keep going. Verse 5, now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all. So again, Peter's not the only one who reminds. Jude's doing the same thing. I want to remind you that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now last week when Alan was, was here, he was bringing out this idea that Peter looks and he looks back into some of these very same examples. We have the flood. We have the angels, the, the angels that turned aside and went after things that were not given to them to have, and Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Peter doesn't talk about those angels in the specificity that Jude does, but it's the idea, again, God knows how to judge those who are unrighteous. He knows how to do that. Peter drew out the other side of that coin. Do you recall how Peter looked at this? He talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, and he talks about Noah. But what else did, what else did Peter draw out? Not only does God know how to judge, what else does he know how to do? He knows how to rescue the godly. And so he looked at Noah, and he looked at Lot. Now, Second Peter applies some descriptions to Lot that I don't know that I would have described Lot in that way. Now, again, I wasn't writing. 
I'm not writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which Peter was. And so he's able to draw some things out about Lot that, frankly, you might not get from reading in Genesis about how Lot was, his spirit was oppressed by the spiritual depravity that was going on around him. He wasn't depressed enough that he actually left it, but there was, um, it was something that grieved him and affected him. And God knew how to rescue the righteous. Lot did not perish with Sodom and Gomorrah. He had to be dragged out against his will, but he was rescued. And God knows how to rescue those who are redeemed. And so you see, do you see some of the same words that Jude is using that Peter uses as well? This idea of indulging. We're going to see that in Peter this morning. The idea of immorality. The idea of being self-willed, not bowing to the authority of God and of Christ. Verse 8, yet in the same way these men, and so he's tying the, the actions and the characteristics of those who would be false teachers, he is tying that back to the people in Sodom and Gomorrah and to the rebellious angels. Yet in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties, glories. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So in other words, these false teachers are willing to take on an air of spiritual superiority to where they will look down, and this idea of reviling is the word from which we get blasphemy. They bring railing judgment. They stand in judgment over these other beings, wherein Michael, an archangel, one of the mucky mucks of the angels, won't dare do that himself. Now, if Michael will not conduct himself in that fashion, why would a man take it upon himself to do so? Now, Michael's got no problem with identifying incorrect behavior. But how does, he, how does he rebuke the devil? The Lord rebuke you. It is about him. It is about his authority. It's not about Michael's. Verse 10, but these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals by these things, they're destroyed. They think that they have inside knowledge. They represent themselves as those who are spiritually attuned, when in reality, they haven't got a clue what they're talking about. To the degree 
that in this case Jude, and we're going to see Peter does the same thing, Jude looks and says, these guys are no better than an animal of the field. They have no more understanding than a jackass because he's going to use that example here shortly. He's an unreasoning, he's unreasoning. He's like, he's like a brute beast, no understanding, but that's not how he carries himself. These false teachers, because of the way that they can speak and their articulateness and just their audacity present themselves as those who, who truly understand. Verse 11, woe to them. For they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. They traded the way of Christ for the way of Cain. They've traded the truth of Christ for the error of Balaam, and they've traded the life of Christ for the death of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Now, the idea of the love feast, this was the communal meal that was common in the early church. So when we have communion as a, as a memory of the sacrifice of Christ, they actually would have a whole meal together. And these false teachers are coming in and basically they're stains on a white garment of the church. They come in and they're taking something that the early church was using as a time of encouragement, of, of a time of... of um, practicing one another's with each other, and they're trying to take it and turn it into something entirely different. In fact, the idea of a hidden reef, what was one of the great dangers uh, for a ship on the sea? When you're, when you're just cruising along and all of a sudden, you run into something that you have no idea is there. And so it's not just that your ship is, is being hit. It's being hit with no anticipation. So where do people go? Well, they go flying. It's like being in a car without a seat belt. And all of a sudden you hit an object, an immovable object. And what happens to, to the folks on board? They're going flying. And if you haven't properly uh, restrained your cargo, your cargo is going flying too. And so it's a great danger to those who are in the boat. And these are the folks, these are the ones that are, that are causing you to be shipwrecked. That's the idea here. And they do it without fear. These people are marked by no humility. 
the concern that they have is not for others. Their concern is for themselves. And in fact, they're not shepherds. They're predators. They're wolves. They're not just mistaken. They've turned away from the way in which they should go. And they're trying to pick off anybody that they can to drag them along. We'll see that again here when we get into back to chapter 2 in, in Peter. They care for themselves. Clouds without water. Now, in the desert, what are you beholden to? What do you need when you're in the desert? Water. What would be a, a sign of hope for you if you were in the desert? Think Elijah right after Mount Carmel. He's stood up to the prophets of Baal. There's been no rain in the land for three and a half years. And Elijah is perched up on a hillside. And what does he see? He sees a cloud the size of a man's fist. You'd better head for higher ground because rain's coming. These guys are clouds, but they don't have water. They promise, they make big talk about being able to, about spiritual wisdom, and they are dry as a bone. They don't have anything to offer of substance. Clouds without water, carried along by winds. Autumn trees without fruit. Autumn is the time when you should be what? Harvesting. These guys, their trees are barren. Doubly dead, uprooted, incapable of actually producing spiritual fruit. Incapable. Jesus talked with his disciples about being what? He was the vine. They are branches. If they're not connected to the vine... There's no way they can produce fruit. Wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars. That's, what, that's actually the word from which we get planet. Now, why would they think a planet was a wandering star? Planets don't move in the same orbits as stars do. You know, the, the Big Dipper, if you look at the Big Dipper now, it looks like the Big Dipper when we were kids. It looked like the Big Dipper when our parents were kids. And go back and back and back and back, there's the Big Dipper. It moves around in the sky, but those stars stay in the same orientation as they orbit around the sky. Not so with the planets. They're all over the place. That was the idea of wandering, not having a a set uh, pattern for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. So last week, Alan was talking about how doom is their destiny. And that is a consistent message again between Peter and Jude. When it talks about the black darkness, it's talking about the blackness of darkness. Hell has been reserved for them. They have a judgment. Their judgment day is going to come. It'll come in God's time.
Verse 14, it was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So again, this idea, you have this theme, the thread that he just pulls through all these people is that they're ungodly and they're thoroughly ungodly. They're ungodly in how they are. They're ungodly in how they act. They're ungodly in how they speak. They're ungodly in how they think. They're just through and through. And again, they're similar. Where, again, where we should be submitting to God and bowing the knee to him, they reject that. And instead, they, pres they present themselves as God. Verse 16, these are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. When you're dealing with these people, it's always about their agenda. They care about themselves. They don't care about anybody else. Peter's going to talk about them that when, they, when, they're, when they're in your presence, oh yeah, their radar is up. Their radar is up for the next person they can sucker. The next person who they can take along into their road to perdition. Verse 17, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. Who's Jude quoting there? He's quoting Peter. Keep your finger in Jude and just jump back a few pages. 2 Peter chapter 3. I think we're going to be here next week. Know this first, uh, chapter 3, verse 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where's the promise of his coming? Jude's talking, and, and again, was Peter an apostle? Yeah. He could also be talking about Paul. Paul made the same comments if you go to 2 Timothy chapter 4 when he was talking to Timothy and writing to Timothy. So again, here you have, beloved, look, we've been told this before, so it shouldn't be a surprise. It's just that now it's actually happening. Verse 19, these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. These 
or on their way to hell. You're not. So act accordingly. And then that, that incredible benediction, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. In verse 1, he talked about those who were kept for Jesus Christ. Now here at the end, he's able to keep you from stumbling. He's able to keep you from falling. He's able to keep you from wandering astray. He's able to protect you. That idea of keeping is uh, the idea of being able to guard in order to be able to protect, to make it to where you're not going to get sucked away. So here for Jude, when Jude is writing, this is, this is happening now. As Peter's looking at it, it's something that is still here to come. So let's go back a few pages and let's go to 2 Peter chapter 2. And again, just as Alan did last week, he went into the last part of chapter 1 in order to set the table for chapter 2 because chapter 2 begins with, but there's a contrast. So here, let's go back to the first part. Let's go back to chapter, uh, verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So he knows how to protect those who are his, and he knows how to condemn those who are not. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authorities. And so everything that we're going to see for the rest of chapter 2 basically is falling into one of those two headings. It's either talking about those who are indulging the flesh, those who are walking alongside with the flesh. They're not interested in killing the flesh, mortifying the flesh, putting the, the deeds of the flesh to death. Rather, they're feeding them. That's what drives them, is the flesh. And so when you go into um, Galatians 5, where it's talking about the deeds of the flesh are evident, that's right up their alley. They don't care about the fruit of the Spirit. They are all about feeding the flesh. So you have those who are feeding the flesh, and also they are marked by this, this um, utter rejection of rightful and lawful authority. And so they're arrogant. They don't look to God as the source of knowledge, as the source of wisdom, as the source of instruction. They look to themselves. They're God. And they're the God, and they are going to serve themselves. And so they have an utter lack of humility. So, in the second half of verse 10, Peter's going to start fleshing this out. They're daring. They're presumptuous. They're bold. They're audacious. They have no problem being up in front. And they have no problem about taking these and making incredible representations about what they know and what they understand and why you should listen to them and not listen to what God has said. 
They're self-willed. If you're a Christian, there's a few things that you never want to have ascribed to you. This is one of them. Self-willed. The world revolves around them. They're not subject to being ruled by another. They're their own boss. They're their own God. In fact, if you go to Titus 1, when when Paul goes in and he's talking about, here's the characteristics that you look for in a pastor, this this is exhibit number one in what you don't want your pastor to be. Right after it talks about you're looking for someone who's blameless, who walks in integrity, not self-willed. Not someone who is, again, rejecting God's word so that he can present his own ideas. Daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. So again, Michael the archangel, duking it out with Satan, the Lord rebuke you. These guys, we can do this. Kind of remind you of in the book of Acts, when you get these seven sons of Sceva, right? We had, and there's a guy who's, who's possessed with, with demons, and, and they go in here and they say, we adjure you in the name of Christ who Paul preaches to come out of this guy. And the, and the, and the, the demons say what? Well, we know who Jesus is, and we've heard about Paul, but who are you? And the demons proceed to whoop them and send them out naked. These false teachers, they have no shame. They have no shame, utterly arrogant, and again, no humility, none. This idea of reviling again is blaspheme. They stand in judgment. They are condescending, and they'll be condescending to anybody at any moment. Verse 11, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. So angels, the the holy angels don't do this, but these guys have no problem doing so. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong, that probably is better transferred harm, as the wages of doing harm. So again, the idea is these guys present themselves as, as, you know, in the know. They have great understanding, when in reality... They have no clue what they're talking about. And if they have no clue what they're talking about, then what's going to happen to those who follow them? Jesus had something to say about that too, right? 
the blind leading the blind, and they both end up in the ditch. This idea of creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, that's in essence what they're around for. So it would be like looking at a domesticated animal that's a meat animal. Why is it there? Why is it on the farm? Well, because ultimately it's going to be on the table. We have cows at home. Last night, we enjoyed one of them. A lot. I like that cow a whole lot more on the table than I did when it was walking around. That's one of the things that it's there for. And when you kill a cow, it's not like you, like you feel like you're, you're, you're wiping out a, a shelf of a library somewhere, right? It's a cow. It's not articulate. It's not wise. It's not knowing. It's not educational. You don't go out, sit out in the field and, and, and sit next to the cow. How may you instruct me today? You don't do that with a cow. You shouldn't be doing that with these guys because they're not going to be leading you in the way that you want to go. And ultimately, they're going to be destroyed and they're going to suffer harm just as they have harmed others. Verse 13, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Okay, so, um, Louis's not here this morning. Jeremy's not here this morning. There's a lot of police officers who like to work the night shift. Now, why do they like to work the night shift? Because that's when the bad guys come out to play. So many things are done at night. Why? It's dark. So what's the big thing about it being dark? Darkness brings anonymity. If you can't see, you can't identify, right? So there's all kinds of things that often happen at night. These guys, oh, they don't have that limitation. They don't care if you see. That's how arrogant they are. That's how thoroughly they believe that somehow Rules don't apply to them. And so they'll do their carousing. They'll do all that in the broad daylight because they don't care if you see. And again, they counted a pleasure. Oh, you mean I can do this during the day? Meaning, I get to do it whenever I want because I can still do it at night too. I don't have that limitation for not wanting to be seen. Their stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. So again, are they wanting to guide people into truth? How can they? They don't know it. And they know that they don't know. It's about deception. It's about leading astray.
this idea that as they carouse with you, it's the idea of, of fellowship. And so again, it's as, as the church is gathering, when we get together uh, next Sunday, we're going to have a fellowship meal, right? First Sunday of the month. What's the purpose of that meal? What's happening when there's a bunch of tables set up over here? Oh, do you ever sit back and watch what's happening while that's going on? You have people talking. Hey, what's going on with you? How can I be praying for you? How can I encourage you? You know, if you stand over on this side of the room and you watch this side of the room when the tables are up and people are sitting down and talking, what, what do you hear? Well, number one, you hear lots of conversations. And oftentimes, you know what? I don't see a whole lot of crying going on over there. Pardon me? Oh, yeah, people are laughing because what are they doing? They're enjoying each other. It is so cool that, that when we get together, it's, it's, it's something that's enjoyable. The bonding of the family of God together, exactly. And isn't it interesting? You don't have to be somebody who's gone here for 20 years in order to be able to enjoy that. We were on the road last week, and we have found a church. It's a couple of master's grads who are in this church. We learned something when we were down there in February. You get to church early at this place because there will not be an empty seat. There wasn't an empty seat in February. There wasn't an empty seat last Sunday. And the same thing. And people are friendly. We had a number of people come over. Hi, don't recognize you. Kind of the same thing here, right? I've talked to many visitors who have come here, and, and it's like they get pounced on. It's almost like there's a competition. Who can get to them first? They're greeted. They're welcomed. These people... Oh, yeah, they're there too. And their radars are up. Not for the purpose of encouragement. Their radars are up because they're looking for targets. Many years ago, I was, I was taught in an officer safety class that when you're looking at somebody, uh, targets, targets, targets. Okay, where on your body are you vulnerable where can I take you down if I need to that's how these people look who's here who is not well grounded in the faith I don't know if you appreciate one of the things that we noticed when we first came here, and it's been, it's, it's going to be 25 years here pretty quick. There's a heavy emphasis here on 
knowing the truth so that you can obey the truth. That has been a, a constant drumbeat here for decades. It was here before we got here because the pastors here, that's what drives them. They're concerned about the flock, and one of the ways to spot error is to simply know truth so that you recognize somebody who's trying to take you a different direction. When you have new Christians, what do you do with them? You start teaching them and training them and discipling them. These guys look at people who are, you know, trying to make that transition of coming out from the world. They're not saved yet, but they're, 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 they're looking in that direction. These guys look at them like a lion looks at a baby deer. That's easy prey. That person's uneducated. They're spiritually ignorant. So I can spin them a tail. And there's a good chance they're going to follow me. They have eyes full of adultery. They don't look at women as Paul encouraged Timothy to do. Look, you look at older women as moms. You look at younger women as sisters. These guys look at women as those who can be conquests. It's all about fulfilling their desires. So again, this isn't looking to somebody to encourage them. This is looking at somebody as how you can take them down. So again, they're not shepherds. They're wolves. Eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. And so here you have somebody who's not spiritually mature, and this idea of enticing, that's fishing with bait. So that's taking, that's not just taking something and throwing, that's a lure. What's the idea of a lure? Is the, pardon me? It looks like the real thing, or... If you're fishing with a lure and you throw it out there, most lures have got something on there called a flasher. So it's something that catches the sun and, and causes the sun to reflect off of that spinning piece of metal. And what you're doing is you're trying to entice the fish to attack this lure. It's enticement. The fish thinks it's snapping at something that's, that's flashy, that's interesting. Yeah, well, what's behind the flasher? It's a treble hook, not a single hook. No, 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 You might be able to get off from a single hook. And they've got barbs on them. So the idea that, you know, there's, yeah, the thing, the hook comes around, but then there's that part that goes back. It's like a, black, like a blackberry bush. You stick your hand into a blackberry bush. Well, which direction do the thorns face? They face that way. And so it's counterintuitive. I mean, you get caught on a thorn. What's your, intent, what, what's your initial response? 
I pull this way, and what does that do with the thorn? Drives it in that much deeper. When the thorn starts to catch, you have to push your arm in to pull it away to be able to extract your hand. Same thing with a hook. You pull against that hook, and that barb sets, and now all of a sudden, you're stuck. And what happens to a fish when it's stuck on the hook? It gets landed. I guess if you're a fish, you can hope that it's catch and release. But guess what happens with the fish? What control does the fish have over that? Absolutely none. And so if you happen to be running into somebody who's looking for dinner, you're dinner now. That's the idea of these men. Eyes full of adultery, never ceasing from sin, enticing, baiting, unstable souls. Having a heart trained in greed. That word trained is the word from which we get gymnasium, gymnast. You hope with a pastor that you have a man who is trained in godliness. What are these guys trained in? Greed. How do I get what I want? And they don't care who they step on in order to get that. Accursed children. This idea of they're damned. Verse 15, forsaking the right way. Now again, this is not something that is unintentional. This idea of forsaking is turning around, turning away from. You were going a particular direction, or at least heading a direction. You saw that, and you specifically turned around to go the other way. Are these people redeemed? No. Do they can they have some understanding as to what redemption is about? Yes. They'll know the language. They know the language here. Yet, none of it has transitioned to here. So they can speak, they can walk the walk, they, excuse me, they can talk the talk. But they cannot walk the walk because they themselves are not redeemed. They've gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. You know what Beor was, or what Balaam was? He was a mercenary. He's a prophet for hire. What was he hired to do? He's hired by the king of Midian to come in and curse the children of Israel. Now, he wouldn't do that. It wasn't because he didn't want to. And in fact, Balaam had an interesting experience, right? He's on his way to meet the king after, you know, turning him down a couple of times until the price got better. And he's on his way. Remember the donkey is trying to turn aside? Well, why was the donkey trying to turn aside? 
there's an angel standing there waiting to kill Balaam. The donkey is saving his life. And finally, you know, Balaam takes out his frustration on the donkey, and the donkey turns around and talks to him. Now, I have been likened to that donkey, perhaps, on more than one occasion, as being an animal that's able to speak. Balaam gets admonished by a jackass. Did it stop him? No. No, he didn't curse Israel as he was hired to do. But what did he do? Hey, you want to take him out? Here's how you do it. Give your daughters to their men. And you'll draw them away. So what ended up happening to Balaam? What happened to Balaam? That's not a rhetorical question. Yeah, when Israel came in and conquered Midian, they killed Balaam with the sword. We don't have time, but it's interesting to draw out three people. I mean, when you talk about Noah, and when you talk about Lot, and when you talk about Balaam. Noah, righteous and rescued. Lot, you know, Noah, willing to separate himself, willing to do whatever it took, willing to do whatever God said, regardless of opposition. Lot, he wasn't so concerned about leaving. He gets rescued. He lives by the skin of his teeth. He loses everything that he has. Balaam, profit for hire. Pay me enough, and I'll tell you what you want to hear. And that's where these guys have gone. They don't care about truth. They care about their greed. Verse 17, these are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. So again, they promise, but they can't deliver. For whom the black darkness has been reserved. So again, they have a judgment that's coming. That judgment is not heaven. That judgment is hell. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. So again, the idea here. Are they encouraging people to godliness? No. They're encouraging people and they are baiting. What they bait the hook with is the base things of our nature. The things that are quote unquote desirable and yet damning. And those thereafter, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, Promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he's enslaved. 
Now, if you're wondering who these are who barely escape, he fleshes it out here. Verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the defilement of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would have been better for them, it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. So what's this talking about? If you go to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 12. In fact, let's go there. Keep your finger in 2 Peter. We'll be back. And go over to Matthew chapter 12. Verses 43 to 45. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes, through a wild, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. What's he, what's he getting at there? There are so many who look at the idea of redemption and they're not so interested in redemption. They may be interested in reform. You know what? I need to turn over a new leaf. I am, I'm a slave to an addiction or I'm a slave to this, or a slave to that. Wearsby has this quote that I ran across this week, temporary reformation without true repentance and rebirth only leads to greater sin and judgment. You try to dress things up. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to, to turn away from this, but what don't they do? See, People talk about putting off and putting on, but there's something that happens in between. Yeah, they never renew their mind. They don't change the way that they think. They don't have a change of heart. And so as they go through, okay, well, I'm going to try to, to get away from this, and I'm going to try to, to go over here without actually being reborn. And what happens to them? Boy, when they go down, they go down hard. The writer of the book of Hebrews talks about this a couple of different times in his letter. And the idea is, is that when you try to reform yourself without being reborn, without being regenerated, you're going to end up rejecting the truth. You see, again, 
what is at the heart of redemption? What's at the heart of regeneration? What's the command of Christ? What was Jesus' first sermon? Repent and believe. What's the idea of repentance? Okay, it's the change of direction. When it talks about repentance before God, what does that look like? Okay, brokenness in a contrite heart, right? David talked about that, right? God's not going to despise one who's broken, one who's contrite of heart. What's the idea of contriteness of heart? Exact humility, submission. It's the idea that in my sin, what posture did I have? Standing, fist upraised, I realize that you say one thing, but I don't want to do that. I want to do something else. Repentance, you don't find somebody with their fist still raised before God. You have the brokenness of heart. I have sinned against Almighty God. What posture do you see people in when all of a sudden they come face to face with God? Boom, they're on their face. I am in the presence of one who is far greater than I. And so here again, when you don't come to the point of repentance and belief, you never come to the point where you are contrite, where you are humbled before God. You don't have that. It's still you're doing things on your terms. And when you realize what is required of you, what happened to the rich young ruler? Lord, what do I need to do to be saved? Well, what, what say the commandments? Do, 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 do. He leaves out covetousness. And Jesus puts his finger right on there, right? I'll tell you what. Sow what you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And what did the young ruler do? He's face to face with what would be required of him. And he turns away from it. He's not willing to pay that price. And so he continues on. He has turned away. He has forsaken the right path. And he is heading back down the path to judgment. The idea is, is that if you apply godly principles... You can have some godly results, but you have no godly change internally. Does that make sense? So we're not talking about people who are redeemed and are somehow falling away. We're not talking about somebody who's 
been on the road to heaven to where I've got my ticket for when I get to the gate. We're not talking about that. These are people who have had a mental assent to the truth of the gospel, but they've never actually repented and believed. And what's the end for them? Well, when a dog vomits, it has relieved itself of the internal pressure that builds up from eating something that it shouldn't have eaten. And so temporarily it has what? Relief. And then what does it do? Something that is just utterly disgusting, right? No less disgusting than us when we're trying to deal with habitual sin and we keep going back to it. No less disgusting. The, the pig. Both of these animals are unclean, by the way, and in the first century, neither one of them were admired or desired. All right? These are animals you don't want to have anything to do with. And a pig, after it's gotten itself all cleaned up and it's nice and presentable, it's all washed off. Now what's the pig do? Hey, where's the nearest mud puddle? I want to go right back and get the way I was. Now that's what happens here to the false teacher and it happens to those who get suckered by them. It's that same idea. Now Alan, last week, had some practical applications for being able to combat that now, didn't he? How do you, what do you do? How do you protect yourself from getting suckered spiritually? How do you protect yourself? Know the truth. Okay, so that means knowing your Bible. And it's going to require some effort on your behalf that extends beyond Sunday morning, right? That means studying. That means, you know, studying with, on your own. It means studying with other people. Take advantage of, of, of the wisdom that God has given to others. Men, we have that chance. Women, you have that chance as well. Are you availing yourself of that? And it's not just knowing the truth. What else does it involve? Pardon me? Doing it. Absolutely. So don't just know it. Do it. We used to say this to people coming into fire prevention and they're, when they're looking at the fire code. Read it, learn it, live it. That's what we're supposed to be doing with Scripture, right? Know the ins and outs of salvation. Don't be a lone ranger. 
once upon a time, I, I worked on truck companies. And truck companies, one of the things that they do is they go on top of the building while it's on fire, and you vertically vent the fire. And it's a place where, you know, if you don't pay attention, bad things can happen. So there were a bunch of rules that were written. And the thing that I recall from the guy who was teaching this particular class, his comment was, there's a dead fireman's name next to every one of these rules. That's how these rules come to be. One of the rules when you're on a roof is no lone rangers. You're not up there by yourself. Spiritually, you don't want to be a lone ranger. You want to be in close contact with others who are able to mutually support where you have mutual support. You're able to help them. They're able to help you. And you know there's another one? Don't play with fire. When you recognize something is error, get away from it. Don't entertain it. Don't, you know, dabble with it. Get away from it. It's not there to help you. Those who are trying to lead you astray, they're not your friend. Stay far from them. When somebody gets identified as a false teacher, have nothing to do with them. Does that make sense? So the next question is, are you doing it? What books are on your shelf at home? Are you mindful of what you're reading? Are you mindful of how you think? Who do you listen to? What blogs are you listening to? Focus on truth and leave the rest of that stuff alone. Don't play with it. I guess some things you need to be familiar enough with them so that you can warn others. But boy, I'll tell you what. The more you play with something, the more risk you place yourself at as well. Questions? These guys are here. Church is full of them. Be mindful and hold on to the truth. Let's pray. Father, how quickly would we be swept away were it not that we're kept, were it not that we're guarded and protected. Thank you that you have given shepherds to this church over the years who have guarded the treasure. who have been mindful of learning truth, that they may teach truth, that we may be encouraged by the truth, that we may obey the truth, that we can in turn then teach it ourselves too. Because there's many who will never stand behind a 
a dais up here behind a platform. And yet we're all responsible for teaching others, be it kids, grandkids, discipling. All of us are to be pointing others and encouraging others in the way in which they should go. And so Father, help us to be able to identify error that we can mark it and avoid it. Treat it like the landmine that it is. Minds that are very capable of maiming. And so Father, help us to be diligent about learning more and more about you, about more, more and more about your word, about how you would have us to think, how you would have us to speak, how you would have us to act. And Lord, help us to be faithful. We're surrounded by a sea of deceit. Help us to be lights in what otherwise is a very dark place. And may we be stable so that we would not be easily deterred or distracted. In Christ's name, amen.